There is only one thing on this earth more powerful than evil, and that's us. Hi, I'm Nicholas Brendan, and you're listening to the Buffy Back Issue Ben. Welcome to the Buffy Back Issue Ben, the show where we go through all the Buffy and Angel comics that are canon chronologically. I'm Zach. And I'm Emily. And today we're here to do kind of a special episode. It'll probably be our shortest one that we ever do because we're only talking about one issue. Yep, it's a one-shot called Angel, Lorne, The Music of the Spheres. It would feel weird to try and put this in front of anything. It would also feel weird to try and tack it on at the end. But what we're doing is essentially saying goodbye to the character of Lorne and also the actor who played him. He has a pretty tragic story, the actor does. He had a dental infection that spread to his bloodstream. It got into his heart. And after about five years, it ended up killing him. So he died at the age of 33. And so this issue was written as a way for the whole franchise to kind of say goodbye to him and to to retire his character, at least at the time for a little while, to kind of give everyone a chance to mourn and heal a little bit. Yeah, the original plan was that IDW was going to bring him back eventually, but then the book changed hands back to Dark Horse. Dark Horse has acknowledged this story, but they haven't brought him back, and I'd probably prefer it if they don't. They send Lauren off with a happy ending, and I'd rather see that than anything else. Yeah, it's well done. So unlike anything else that we've done with IDW so far, this one is written and illustrated by John Byrne. We saw John Byrne work earlier in the Angel After the Fall First Night Lauren story, still the longest comic title in history, (laughs) but this time he's on writing and art duties. And so we start our story with seeing Fred, who is walking in a bad part of town, basically so that she can just find some vampires to kill them. And of course, we know... We've been through this over the last number of episodes. We know it's definitely not Fred, but just Illyria passing as Fred. And some vampire shows up, and she basically kills all of them with a telephone pole. Yeah, and she gets pretty excited about it. And then a new character shows up. He ends up kind of speaking directly into Illyria's head, and he knows Illyria's name. He has a big cloak and golden shoulder pads, and he has a golden face. And he says... You may refer to me as Discord. Pleasant name. Yep. His voice, the narration is very descriptive of his voice. And it says that it's like somebody filled your head with broken glass and was using it as a maraca. It ends up throwing Illyria totally off her game, unlike anything we've seen in quite a while. She's broken by it. She's shaken by it. And it just stops her in her tracks. So we cut away from Illyria and we go find the Grusalug. And he's just kind of hanging out on the beach with his dragon, as one does. And really, the reason the Grusalug is in here, or the reason I assume that he's in here, is in real life, the actor who played the Grusalug, Mark Lutz, was best friends with Andy Hallett, who played Lauren. The Grusalug has, you know, inserted any of the more mainstay characters in for Gru, but he's really just here to help send the character off, given their real life friendship. Yeah, and it's sweet that he's here. He plays a pretty big role. And he's there with Cordelia. Yep. No, not the lady, the dragon. And so basically, Gru gets mobbed by a bunch of girls on the beach because he's so incredibly handsome. And he has to be saved by his own dragon. The the brave and undefeated. Exactly. And so he has to be saved by his own dragon. But then one of the girls happens to 
grab his leg as he's being lifted up by the dragon, and then he has to save her, and then the dragon has to save them both. It's all a big deal. This girl starts falling after, like, his boot falls off, and the gruesome leg just dives after him, and the dragon, like, rolls its eyes and goes underneath the two of them to catch them. And she's like, you saved me, the gruesome leg. He's like, "Twas I. (laughs) You are exactly right. But then, literally, Los Angeles flips upside down. And the dragon crashes into some dude's house. Yep. Who, as our um, green-skinned narrator will tell us, the owner of that hole will be sad later on to find out that insurance doesn't cover falling dragons. Yes. I like how they wrote the description of the house, too. Like, it was in a newspaper. 17 RM, 5 bath, N-W-L-Y-R-E-N kitchen. I just think it's funny. Anyway, evidently that was just me. (laughs) It's okay. And so we cut over to Angel. Because you can't have an angel story without angel. Real scowly angel. Yep. He has not turned his frown upside down. But I do like how Lauren mentions that angel looks better in basic black than pretty much anyone except for maybe Jackie O. I thought that was charming. And so angel's fighting this demon who likes to eat unborn babies. But if you can cut the demon open before the babies are digested, then everybody's fine. So that's cool. So he's just fighting along, and then all of a sudden, L.A. flips over. Yet again. And it's a big problem. Angel still manages to kill the demon, but he also puts a sword through his own leg. He's been stabbed so many times. It doesn't really affect anything, but he does wear a bandage for the rest of it. And we cut back over to... I shouldn't say cut back to, because we haven't really seen him yet. And then we see Lauren for the first time in our Lauren story. Yep. And he's on the bathroom floor. There are two toilets in that bathroom. One is a bidet. It doesn't look very much like a bidet. I I don't know. What else could it be? No, you're probably right. It has to be a bidet. Lauren would have a bidet if anybody would. Probably is. I'm afraid of bidets. Are you? I'm not quite sure how to use them. I had a friend who was British, and so he said that when he went on holiday to visit his French grandparents, that he would use the bidet as a foot bath. And so now in my head... It's just a foot bath. One time when I lived in France, I had a bidet in my room. There was a bidet and a sink, but the toilet was outside in the hallway. Huh. I was, it was disturbing. Also, the bidet had these like rust stains in it. I definitely never used anyone's bidet towel to dry my face. (laughs) That's not a flattering story for you. I know. I didn't say who, I didn't, hey, I said it didn't happen. Right. Sorry. I forgot. Anyway, getting back to Lauren, he's on the bathroom floor, and he goes to see a doctor. Overall, I like this story. I got some big issues here. Yeah. Well, he goes to the doctor, and he finds out that he has cancer, so Lauren is dying. He only has a few months to live, which for me kind of takes the ending away. We're not there yet, but I mean, we've already said up front, like, this is the last Lauren story. This is his ending. And it makes his actions at the end seem diminished if he just thought he was going to die anyway. It doesn't, it doesn't. And it's also weird if this is supposed to be like a send-off tribute to a character to be like, oh yeah, he's dying. Well, part of it is that Lauren's like, I can't have cancer. Pyleans can't have cancer. And he's like, well, you didn't stay on Pylea. You came to Earth. And so that's all I can think of why you have cancer unless maybe there was something that you've done recently that was completely and utterly against your nature. But that seems, yeah, that's weird. I don't like this. I don't like the throwing, 
I think it takes away from what Lauren does at the end of the story. I think they offered it up as a way of redeeming him for killing Lindsay. I don't know. It seems weird. I don't. Do you see uh, that side, though? Not really. I think that's why it was written that way. I don't particularly agree with it, but I think that's what the idea was. I think it's weird to give a death sentence to a character where the actor just died. Yeah, it's an odd one. And really, that page could have been taken out, and I'd be fairly on board for the story, but that's weird to me. It is weird also because it doesn't really affect anything else later on. Yeah, it just gives him a death sentence. and It just kind of gives him an ultimatum. But it does send him back over to the Hyperion, where he goes and sees all of the the friends, except that all the only one who's there is Angel. Because there's really no one left. I mean, after the well, the end of the series, and then after the fall, really split everyone up. Illyria's out there somewhere. Gru is out there somewhere. Yeah, Spike so, is mean, out there somewhere. But but yeah, it's not. They're not a team. They're not right together. And so L.A. flips over for a third time, and. This is the first time that Lauren's experiencing it. And he's like, this is not good. Very much not good. So they go outside and see that it wasn't just a small scale event that just happened to the hotel. Like They go outside and all of these cars are like flipped over and inside buildings because it's like the world kind of just turned on its side and everything slid its way down. And so Gru has brought back Illyria. He has rescued her. For some reason. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little odd. I guess... In all of Los Angeles, the Grusalug happened to find an alley where Illyria was and nabbed her. Well, eh, whatever. But... Dragon smell? Sure. We'll the, call it that. The dragon can sniff. Yep. And so Illyria's describing her experience, and she said, Discord. It was called Discord. And it sang, and the sound seemed to explode within me. And Lorne, all of a sudden out of nowhere, goes, Did it say anything about the music of the spheres? And then we get into a whole explanation about Aristotle... How all the planets are mounted on invisible crystal spheres that kind of keep everything in balance. And if you get those out of balance, no one knows really what's going to happen except the universe will end. So Angel being Angel just says, huh, sounds bad. Let's go stab it. Pretty much. And Illyria freaks out and she's like, I am not going. That is the worst idea ever. What's interesting about this is before or after this, this is the only story that ever shows Illyria with fear. Yeah. I'm taking it on the scale of that's how bad this actually is. Because when I was reading it, when it first came out, I kind of thought it was a little out of character. But just seeing how this is the only instance, I kind of just take it as those are the stakes for her. Like, this is something that rattles her. Well, yeah. I mean, if the universe ends, Illyria ends. Well, she already tried to do that not too long ago. I mean, sure, a movie's been made since then. And she's gone off on a soul-searching mission with Gun, but... But, you know, some details. You know, recently she tried to end existence. Yes, but it was on her terms. Now she wants to live again. And Illyria brings them back roughly to the area where it happened before. They drive Angel's old car, which I liked. I liked it too. And Gru was like, should have brought the dragon. They get to this weird, like, bright colored Tetris thing that's kind of hanging there in the middle of It, is. it looks like someone LA. vomited it up like 3D Tetris. Yeah, it's an odd moment. But it's also like primary color Tetris. The universe is coming apart in pieces. Yes, and so we see that not only is Discord there, but a few others are there. Discord, Disharmony, and Cacophony. And their ultimate goal is to pretty much... They're all done. They're like, yeah, we've been holding this together for a while, and... 
and we're all done with it. Screw it. So they're like, we're going to throw these spheres out of whack, basically. Like We've held the universe together for all time. And all of the universes are going to end, not just this one. The multiverse of Angel. Which yeah. I guess there is a multiverse. They've gone to other dimensions. Yeah, see? Many of them. I don't know why I questioned that. There, Yes, there's so much dimensional crap in this world. And what they say, too, is that it was that moment that Wolfram and Hart sent everybody back from hell, that that was the moment that they could escape from wherever they were. Center of the earth. The center of the earth. They took a journey there. Wow. And so they throw all of these very realistic illusions that hurt, but don't actually... Maim. Maim, So, like, they fall into, like, a pile of golden spikes. Not that spike. They fall into a pile of golden pointers. Pokers. Which go through them, and then they hurt, but they don't actually kill. Yeah, and they also... um, There's this noise that's happening that they can't control that's very painful to them. The glass maraca noise inside your coconut. Exactly. And Gru is like, we shall not fall. You shall not win. And so they start to pull all of his joints out of whack, just for good measure. Because why not? But then, who saves the day? Cordelia the dragon. And Illyria, and the random girl who hung on to Gru's boot. Look, I've chosen... somehow is coming out, come back again. I have chose to ignore her entirely worthless subplot. Uh, it doesn't even make any sense. So, our reinforcements are here and as lauren says from that moment on things happen fast so they well, each... now that they're distracted they're like stab 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 yeah pretty much do what we know stab 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 now that they've broken the illusion they have some power back and they keep <laughs> just going at it and then just for a split and then they're like yep all done getting stabbed so we're all just gonna sing unhinge our jaws Crack open a note and destroy all reality. Mm-hmm. The very foundations of the earth are shaking, quote Illyria. So the only way to save the world is to put Harmony kind of back in place. No, not that Harmony. Although we could have just stuck Harmony down there. Solved the problem. Solved many a problem. And Angel's like, I'll do it. I'll save reality. And Lawrence just tells him off. He's, you... Angel, I love you like my own undead brother, but you can't even carry a tune. And he jumps into this abyss. Don't cry for me, Transylvania. I knew this was coming from the moment I heard the bad guys sing. And the ground closes up around him. And he's gone. And they kind of note that, you know, the danger is gone. And that the world feels a little better. Now that Lauren is at the center of it, singing. Holding it all together. And we cut back to the Hyperion, where the gang's all there. And Spike is stupid about it. He is. He usually is, though. He's like, world feels better, won't last. Bunch of pricks. But then they start to talk about it, and they're like, well... Well, we have Gunn, who's apparently back from his soul-searching mission. Oh, yeah. And Kate's there. Damn it, Kate. Screwing up continuity. But Gru says... That Lorne had the heart of a poet and the soul of a warrior. And then he asks, is he still aware of us, do you think? And Angel says, I wonder, he's one with the universe now. But I'd like to think he can still hear us. And that he knows how much he's missed. And then the narration from Lorne. He says, oh, I can hear you, Angel Cakes. And it's music to my ears. That was sad. 
And so we say goodbye to Lauren. Yep. Unfortunately, where this is collected, it's collected in the John Angel John Byrne collection, which has all the stuff that John Byrne did uh, when IDW had the property. Most of them don't count as canon. They don't contradict anything, but they're also not very good. It's like Angel back in the day fighting the Frankenstein monster on two separate occasions and Angel having a World War One romp with Wesley's grandfather. But don't you always like a good romp? What are the chances? Very slim. Slimmer than finding a demon goddess in an alley. True. Very true. But unfortunately, one thing that the hardcover collection doesn't have is they don't have everything that was in the original one-shot, which included a little bit of writing from Mark Lutz, the actor who played the Grusalug. So since you can't find it in there... We thought we'd give you a taste of it here. And by a taste, I mean the whole thing. Everybody loved Andy. He made friends wherever he went. And I'm not just talking about passing friends, your run-of-the-mill variety, but good ones, the kind that lasts a lifetime. Between his childhood friends in his hometown of Osterville, Mass., and his adoptive home in Los Angeles, not to mention the ridiculous amount of people he met at the Angel Conventions he attended in every corner of the world, he literally had friends everywhere. People often throw around the term winning personality, but with Andy, it was more than that. Andy's personality was like a friendship smart bomb. He could talk to anyone of any age and background, find a common thread, and within minutes make them feel as though they had been lifelong friends. I know. I saw it happen a million times in person, and moreover, it happened to me. I met Andy my very first day on set. I had just stepped out of a trailer after an hour-long makeup test for Gru, and was covered from head to toe in metallic cobalt blue makeup, the original idea for the character that was thankfully scrapped. When I ran into him, he was in full Lorne garb, head to toe green, and, having never seen the show before, I had no idea who he was. How long? Andy asked me with a shorthand usually reserved for old friends and siblings, not complete and utter strangers. About an hour, I replied, all the while sizing him up. His makeup was really quite intricate and altogether seamless. You could read the expressions on his face in the same manner you could on anyone completely devoid of the stuff. You? Three hours, you effing lucky bastard. I laughed out loud at both his audacity and his misfortune. We became best friends immediately. The rapport was instant, easygoing, and warm. We spent the next hour talking about everything under the sun, except for the fact that we were both different colors, and in these outrageous outfits on the Paramount backlot. Executives in suits would occasionally pass us by, every one of them giving us some manner of look that involved a combination of curiosity, mild amusement, and disbelief. Andy seized on every opportunity he could to make them laugh. Humans, he said, loudly in feigned disgust. Don't they know it's not polite to stare to a gaggle of suits across the street? Who raised you anyway, ma'am? Have you no respect for visible minorities? He inquired of someone who I instantly recognized (laughs) as the former head of Paramount Pictures, Sherry Lansing, but he obviously did not. She laughed heartily and nodded in the direction of both the blue and green humanoids that had just verbally accosted her, an absurdity that I'm sure could only take place in Hollywood. Andy was invincible and absolutely fearless in his lorn garb, and even though he made no bones about hating being cooped up inside all of that makeup for hours on end, he secretly loved the anonymity and confidence it afforded him. Not that he needed it. B. 
Being new to LA, Andy showed me around town, bringing me out with him to some great local watering holes and restaurants, introducing me to some great people who remain my friends to this day, and even helping me find my first place, directly across from his own. I'm going to need to build a moat and fill it with all manner of nasty beasties, he would joke to the fans we met at conventions. Let's see, let's swim across that to mooch my food. That was the kind of guy he was, helpful, thoughtful, and generous to a fault, all the while accompanied by a wickedly sharp sense of humor. While visiting Andy's place, you were always assured of two things, a gracious host and a constantly ringing telephone. Andy's phone rang more than anyone I have ever encountered in my entire life. You couldn't be at his place for more than two minutes when the phone would ring, and it would continue to ring incessantly. At first, I wondered who the hell was calling his house all the time. <laughs> but slowly, it all started to make sense. People wanted to be around him. People wanted to hang out with him. People wanted to be his friend, and it was no wonder, what with all the energy that Andy radiated, who wouldn't want to be his friend? I think at some point, almost instinctively, Andy had to give up answering his phone with any kind of regularity, since doing so would mean never getting anything else done. The thing I'll always remember and loved the most about Andy was watching him sing. He was born to do it. Andy was outgoing and full of vitality, but when you got him onto a stage, gave him an audience, and put a microphone in his hand, look out, he absolutely came alive. It was as if he received a shot of adrenaline. He radiated what showbiz types commonly refer to as it. It was a raw and natural talent he possessed. And I have little doubt it is exactly what Joss saw when he first dreamed up the character of the host after seeing Andy sing karaoke at a local dive bar. And while Joss may have plucked Crevlorn Swath of the Deathwalk... <laughs> the hard one. <laughs> Crevlorn Swath of the Deathwalk clan. And while Joss may have plucked Crevlorn... <laughs> I already said it, you're fine. <laughs> we'll work around it. And while Joss may have plucked Crevlorn Swath of the Deathwalk clan from the depths of his imagination... Andy's personality and charisma made it his own. After his passing, I found myself thinking that I was glad that some of the really important people in my life had gotten to meet him. My dad, my brother, my little sister. They all got to meet him and experience the joy that emanated from him on a daily basis. I'm really glad so many fans out there got to meet Andy at all the conventions we always seem to attend together. If you never got the chance to meet him over the years, I wish you could have. You too would have become friends with him immediately. I miss my friend desperately, but I take solace in the fact that I know at this very moment he's singing somewhere. R.I.P. my friend. And then there are all these lovely pictures of the two of them together. Yeah, they apparently went on like European vacations together. And they wore sumo suits together. It's really, they're a bunch of very candid, very sweet photos. Yeah, they're lovely. But that'll do it for this week. We wanted to try and send the character off in our own way. But we'll be back next week. You can find me over at editorsnotecomics.com on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you want to get the show a week early, go to patreon.com slash editorsnotecomics. A $1 monthly donation will get you this show a week early. And it'll get you the other show a day early. Yep. We'll be back next week. We're in kind of the home stretch of covering the IDW books. So we'll see you then. And to finish out the episode, we'll listen to... A song sung by Andy Hallett as Lauren, and we will be back next week. It's not that easy being green, having to spend each day in the color of the leaves. 
When I think it could be nicer being red or yellow or gold or something much more colorful like that. It's not easy being green. It seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things, and people tend to pass you over 'cause you're not standing out like flashes, sparkles in the water, or stars in the sky. Oh, but green's the color of spring. And green can be cool and friendly, like. And green can be big, like an ocean, or more important, like a mountain, or tall like a tree. When green is all there is to be, it could make you wonder why. But why wonder? Why wonder? I am green and it'll do fine. It's beautiful and I think it's what I wanna be. Or important like a mountain, or tall like a tree. Oh, and green is all there is to be. It could make you wonder why, but why wonder? Why wonder? I am green and it'll do fine. It's beautiful. And I think it's what I want to be.